Now we turn to Haggai. Now Haggai and Zechariah were ministering during the exact same time. They were contemporaries of each other. Haggai is ministering now during the first return. He's ministering between 520 and 518. The main idea of the book of Haggai is his motivating the Jews to build the temple and reminding them of the new Jerusalem. Haggai is saying, build that temple. Now remember they started building the temple in 539, and then a bunch of people were like, we don't like you, we don't think you have a temple. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're so scared, we'll stop. And they didn't trust in God, and they didn't trust in the fact that Cyrus II, under the leading of God, had backed them in building the temple, and they easily gave up. Without even physical oppression, they gave up. And so they quit. And then it was around 515 that the prophets came along and said, yeah, you really need to get that going. You need to really get that going. And in 520, they finish. So Haggai is encouraging them to build this temple because this temple is going to be metaphorically the seed of the imagery of the new Jerusalem that he's going to one day build. So he's going to first talk about how they need to rebuild the temple or build the temple. And then that is going to then merge into the metaphor of a new Jerusalem, a, a more glorious temple that he's going to establish one day. The book of Haggai contains five messages where God comes in one message and then another message and another message, all taking place at different time periods through this first return. First message is verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. The first way the Jews had returned, they were not building the temple, and so Haggai is going to get on them for the misplaced priorities. So chapter 1 Verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the sixth month of King Darius, second year, Yahweh spoke his message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. We already talked about them in Ezra. Yahweh, who rules over all, says this. These people have said the time for rebuilding Yahweh's temple has not yet come. So Yahweh spoke through the prophet Haggai as follows. It is right for you to live, is it right for you to live richly in richly paneled houses while my temple is in ruins? Here then is what Yahweh who rules over all says. Think carefully about what you are doing. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you are never filled. You drink, but you are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. Those who earn wages end up with holes in their money bags. The first thing that God says is, your priorities are misplaced. You've stopped building the temple, and yet you've turned to your own houses after watching DIY and the Home and Garden Network, and you've decided to put wooden panels on your house and porches and, and all this kind of stuff. And meanwhile, you have no house for God to dwell in. You have no sacrificial system for the atonement of sins. And this is not right. Now, God is not saying you can't have nice things. But you cannot have nice things to the exclusion of your relationship and your obedience to Yahweh. Disordered love. You're not allowed to put the remodeling of your house and the improvements and the biggering biggering, the making bigger of your house over serving Yahweh and serving other people. 
And this is what God is angry. You're not loving God because you have no house in atonement. And you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're investing it all in yourself. And God says that. And so as a result, remember Deuteronomy verses 28 and 29 said, if they disobey God, then he would shut off the reins. And there would be no blessings from God. So he says, you've planted, but you're not really harvesting that much because it's dying in famines. You eat, but you don't really have much to eat and you don't have much to drink, and that's why you're always hungry. And you put on clothes, but you're not warm because the clothes you have are very thin and not sufficient. And you have money, but it doesn't go very far because you don't have a lot of money. And when the economy is dropping, then the price of things go up, so the money you do have can barely get you much. And that's because God has shut off the floodgates. He's shut off the gates of blessings because you have disordered your love with him. You put your houses, your materialism above Yahweh, above your relationship with him. So notice there's no God here. There's no pegging God. There's no idols. But there's still idolatry here. There's still idolatry. Verse 7. Moreover, Yahweh who rules over all says, Pay close attention to these things. Also, go up to the hill country and bring back timber to build the temple. Then I will be pleased and honored, says Yahweh. You expected a large harvest, but instead there was little. And when you brought it home, it disappeared right away. Why, asked Yahweh, who rules over all? Because my temple remains in ruins. Thanks to each of you for favoring his own house. This is why the sky has held back its dew and the earth its produce. Moreover, I have called for a drought that will affect the fields and the hill country and the grain and the new wine. Fresh olive oil and everything that grows from the ground. It will also will harm the people and the animals and everything they produce. So God says, this is all happening to you because because you have not obeyed me. As a result, a famine is coming. A much more severe famine. You think that this is the worst it can get? It's going to get worse. Now this is exactly what happened in Judges. Not only did God say in Deuteronomy, this was what will happen. If you disobey me, then I will stop the rains. And, and you will not have enough to eat. And if you continue to disobey me, then I will bring famine in the land that will wipe everything out. If you continue to disobey me, then I will bring diseases and pestilence. If you continue to disobey me, I will bring the oppression of foreign armies to rule over you. And if you continue to disobey me, they will carry you out of your land into exile. And that's exactly what happened in the judges we saw at the beginning of that famine and oppression of enemies. But God raised up a deliverer. But he had to keep doing this because they kept returning to their ways. And that happened to the kings. And ultimately, they went into exile. And God says, I'm starting it all over again. You're in, you're in phase one. The land's not producing what you want it to produce. And if you don't change, you're going into phase two. And there's going to be absolute famine. Total devastation of food and crops and resources. Like, my goodness. How have you not learned? How have you not learned? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, along with the whole remnant of the people, obeyed Yahweh their God. And we saw that obedience in the book of Ezra. 
They responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai, who spoke just as Yahweh their God had instructed him. And the people began to respect Yahweh. Then Haggai, Yahweh's messenger, spoke Yahweh's word to the people. I am with you, says Yahweh. So Yahweh energized energized and encouraged Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoiazadak. Whole remnant of the people. They came and worked on the temple of their God, and Yahweh who rules over all. And this took place on the 24th day of the sixth month of King Darius' second year. They obeyed, and they responded in obedience, and that was a good thing. And we saw that in the book of Ezra. That's actually encouraging because we didn't see a lot of response to the pre-exilic prophets. They just kind of talked and talked and talked, and nobody responded in any kind of a way to that. That brings us to the second section, which is chapters 2, 1 through 23. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 was the third message that Haggai gives. And now that they've responded appropriately and they're building the temple, now Yahweh promises that blessings will come there will be future blessings. So chapter 2, verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, Yahweh spoke again through the prophet Haggai. Ask the following questions to Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoiazadak, and the remnant of the people, who among you, who among you survivors saw the former splendor of this temple. How does it look to you now? Isn't it nothing by comparison? Even so, take heart. Zerubbabel says Yahweh. Take heart, Joshua, son of Jehoiazadak, the high priest, and all the citizens of the land, says Yahweh. And begin to work, for I am with you, says Yahweh, who rules over all. Do not fear, because I have made promise to your ancestors when they left Egypt. And my spirit, even now, testifies to you. Moreover, Yahweh, who rules over this all, says it will just be a little while. I will once again shake the sky and the earth and the sea and the dry ground. And I will also shake up all the nations and they will offer their treasures. And then I will fill this temple with glory, says Yahweh, who rules over all. The silver and the gold will be mine, says Yahweh, who rules over all. The future splendor of the temple will be greater than all the former times. Yahweh, who rules over all, declares... And in this place, I will give peace. This is now a few months later. The foundation is built. They haven't completely finished the temple yet. And the people are sad. And remember, we talked about the Ezra. The people who remembered the time of Solomon looked at the temple and they're like, oh, this is so horrible. Solomon's temple was so great and grand and splendor. And now we just have this pathetic little thing now. And it's not like the days of glory. And so God responds to this and says, you, you look at this and it's not like what you've seen before and you're sad? Don't worry. Because one day I will do amazing things. One day I will fill this temple with my glory. And this will become the glory of all the world. And what God is basically saying is, if you remember what I said to David, I don't really need a temple and the way that you think of temples. I was content with a tent. I want a house. You need a house for me to dwell with you. But it doesn't have to be this glorious, splendor, marble, stone, 
gold, whatever you want, whatever you think you can put on it to make it look amazing. What will make it amazing is when I indwell it and my glory shines out of this temple. All the splendor of Solomon's temple cannot compare to the glory of God's light coming out of the temple. And it is nothing compared to the Garden of Eden that I will grow out of Jerusalem and will fill the entire earth. Like, once again, God says, I don't need a house in the way that you think of houses. Nothing you can build can ever come close to showing the splendor of Yahweh like he can show his splendor and glory. And remember, nobody looks at a building and says, wow, like the cathedrals of France and England and Spain. And nobody looks at these and thinks, wow, that's so amazing. God must be awesome. Nobody thinks that. But if the glory of God actually physically dwelt this thing, and it was like flowing out with no light source, no electricity source, no nothing, and it was turning everything around you into this garden of blessings, then people would say, wow, that's an amazing God. And so God says, don't worry about what the temple looks like. Only worry about me coming and dwelling with you. That's the main point. It's the same thing for us. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your body is physically capable of or not physically capable of. All that matters is that God's spirit is in you. And he is greater than anything in the world. And he is faithful to finish the work he started in you. And he can do amazing things with you. That's all that matters. That's all that's matter. Because the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Then the kingdom of God is the limit. And this is what God is saying. I don't care what your churches look like. I don't care what your temple looks like. All I care is that you built a place for me out of your heart. That you built a home. Like I don't care what your home looks like if it's sterile and uncomfortable for me to dwell with you. If it's cold and callous and unwelcoming. But if your home is comfortable and welcoming and I can relax with you and you relax with me, that's what I care about. That's what I care about. So don't worry about what it looks like. Only worry about, has your heart made a place for me? Has your heart invested into this building and prepared a place? And that's what God really cares about because if that heart is willing, then there is no end to what he can accomplish, regardless of what you think in a worldly sense and what the world thinks in a worldly sense. He can turn anything into a garden. He can turn anything to a garden if it's willing to allow him to plow it. Because a lot of times we're like, nope, I've got this garden under control. I know exactly where I want to put everything and do everything. And God says, nope, if you give over the tools, so to speak, and I know that's like a youth group campfire speech, he will take over and he will do things. Notice he says, if you, if you give over, not only will I turn this into a garden, but I will shake the sky and the earth. I will get people's attention. I will get people's attention. Chapter 2, verse 10, is the fourth message. On the 24th day of the ninth month of Darius, second year, Yahweh spoke again to the, through, again to the prophet Haggai. And Yahweh, who rules over all, says, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in a fold of his garment, and that fold t- touches bread, 
a boiled dish, wine, olive oil, or any other food, will that item become holy? And the answer is no. He's giving examples from the law. And this idea of holiness and uncleanliness is found in Leviticus chapter 6. And basically what God says is if you're in the tabernacle or the temple and you pick up something that is holy and consecrated and you put it in the fold of your garment, it will make you holy. It will, holiness will kind of make the garment holy. Only because you're in the tabernacle and only because that thing is sacred and only because you're handling it there. But if you take it out and then that thing touches other things, will it make those things holy? And the answer is no. Okay, holiness is not contagious. Holiness is not transferable. Holiness is only holiness when you're in the presence of God. And so whatever is holy in the presence of God will be holy. But when it leaves the presence of God, it doesn't just start like touching things and becoming clean. And so that's the idea that he paints. So then he asked the priest a second question. And he says this. The priest answered, it will not, because they get the law. So verse 13, then Haggai asks, if a person who is richly unclean because of touching a dead body comes in contact with one of these items, will it not become unclean? And the priest answered, yes, it will become unclean. Now, unlike holiness, uncleanliness is contagious. If you're unclean and you touch something, it becomes unclean. If that thing touches something, it becomes unclean and so forth. It becomes a domino effect. And we get this, right? If you're like really clean after a good shower and a scrubbing down and exfoliating of everything, and you go out and touch your nappy little kids that just came out of the mud of the backyard and playing, it's not like your cleanliness is like Mr. Clean and just sparkles start coming out of you and they just start becoming cleansed, right? But when they're all muddy and dirty and snotty and full of viruses and bacteria and they touch you, then it comes to you and it makes you unclean. Then you touch somebody else and it makes them unclean. And so uncleanliness is contagious in the same way sin is well. Right? Most people who encounter sin don't like touch sinful people and they're like, boom, I'm a little angel now. Okay? Most of the time, sinful people come into your life and tempt you unless you flee and run away to become like them. And so this is what God is saying. So those are those. So he takes the law and he takes a concrete thing from the law that they understand so he can make a metaphor example out of this. So verse 14, Then Haggai responded, The people of this nation are unclean in my sight, says Yahweh, and so is all their effort. Everything they offer is also unclean. Now therefore, reflect carefully on the recent past. Before one stone was laid on another in Yahweh's temple, from that time when no one, when one came expecting a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty measures from it, there were only twenty. I struck all the products of your labor with blight and disease and hail, and yet you brought nothing to me, says Yahweh. Think carefully about the past. From today, the 24th day of the ninth month, to the day work on the temple of Yahweh was resumed. Think about it. The seed is still in the storehouse, isn't it? And the vine, fig tree, pomegranate, and olive tree have not produced. Nevertheless, from today on, I will bless you. God says, you're unclean. You completely disobeyed me. You rejected me by not building a house for me. You're not making any offerings of sacrifices for atonement of your sin. 
And so therefore, everything you touch has become unclean. Everything you're touching is dying. Everything is being contaminated. And you're not getting the blessings of the land. Now that you're building the temple, now I can bless you. Now I can bless you. In the first sense, in the first chapter, God makes it clear that the reason you're not being blessed with food in abundance is because you disobey God. But now here he's coming at a different angle and painting the picture of uncleanliness. And, and this is important because most of these Jews would probably remember back in Exodus, one of the most significant events in Israel's history. Remember, he says, think about the past, was the book of Exodus. So remember, they came out of Egypt and why God is on Mount Sinai giving Israel, the instructions on how to build a tabernacle, they're at the base of the mountain building a golden calf and worshiping it. And the very money they were supposed to use that God gave them to build the tabernacle is the very money that they used that God gave them to build an idol. And as a result, they disobeyed God. Through their repentance, they escaped the condemnation, the judgment of destruction that God would bring on them. But they were still unclean. So at the end of the book, they finished building the tabernacle. And in chapter 40, it says, but Moses could not enter because they were unclean. They weren't able to enter the presence of God and they weren't able to reap the blessings of God because their sin had made them unclean and cut them off from God. So then chapter in Leviticus, chapters 1 through 15, God teaches them how to become clean. And in chapter 16, they do the Day of Atonement, which cleanses them of their sins. And the book of Leviticus ends with Moses entered the tabernacle. And that's what God is painting the picture here. Like, you don't have a temple because of your disobedience, therefore you're unclean. Therefore, you're not able to come into my presence, and you're not being blessed. But now that you've repented, and now that you're building, when this thing is finished, then you'll be able to enter, and I will bless you. That day is coming. That day is coming. The fifth and final message is the final verses of this book. So in chapter 2, verse 20, Then Yahweh spoke again to Haggiah on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I am ready to shake the sky and the earth. I will overthrow the royal thrones and shatter the might of the earthly kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots, those who ride them, and horses and their riders, and I will fall as, and their riders will fall as people kill one another. On that day, says Yahweh who rules over all. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, my servant, says Yahweh, and I will make you the signet ring, for I have chosen you, says Yahweh who rules over all. So God promises a day that he will indwell this temple and he will shake the earth and the sky, destroy all the nations, establish his glory. He will take Zerubbabel as the king, the descendant of David, and he will establish him as a signet ring. Basically, the signet ring was the ring that you put into clay, remember, to seal it with your authority that whatever is written in this thing must happen on your authority. So God is going to use Zerubbabel to basically bring the kingdom of God on earth and to eliminate all evil and to establish all the blessings of the Garden of Eden on earth. And so they, he promises that. That was never fulfilled. Zerubbabel died and God never used Zerubbabel to destroy all the nations and establish the Garden of Eden and nor has he ever done that since. 
We're not experiencing that. So this obviously is a metaphor for the Messiah and what Jesus is doing. So Zerubbabel is not literally the one that God is going to use as a signet ring. The descendant of Zerubbabel is going to be the designet ring. And he's going to shake the nations, and he's going to establish the Garden of Eden, and that's Jesus. And that's the idea that's being painted here. In this immediate context, you're like, well, that's kind of pushing it too much, right? Now, I know we all know that Jesus fulfills many of these prophecies, but it is a legitimate argument to say, yeah, but shouldn't it be clear and obvious? Like, if I took this to a non-believer and showed them, shouldn't they be able to pick that up? Yeah. But you need to put this in the context of Haggai's contemporary, who is Zechariah, who's specifically going to connect Zerubbabel to the future Messiah one day. And so, yes, maybe all by itself, you're like, God, you kind of failed on the promises because you literally said Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel never did that. But when Zerubbabel becomes an obvious metaphor in Zechariah of the branch or the Messiah, then it becomes clear that this is to be seen as a metaphor. So this is looking forward to the day of the sentence. Likewise, another thing that strengthens this is you and I don't think ancestors and descendants. We don't think that I am my parents and grandparents, and they're flowing through me in a sense. We do in a genetic kind of a sense. We know about DNA and that kind of stuff and recessive and dominant genes. And, and we can see mannerisms, all oh, you're just like your grandpa or whatever. But we don't really think of ourselves as being an extension of our ancestors and our descendants being an extension of us like people in the East do. And so Abraham could say that I received the land because the descendants received the land. This is the argument the author of Hebrews says, that in some ways Levi was blessed by Melchizedek, because even though Levi wasn't born yet, he was in the loins of Abraham. That was their way of saying DNA. The idea is that in some ways, by God saying, you Zerubbabel, it is Zerubbabel, because Jesus is an extension of Zerubbabel. Without Zerubbabel, there would be no Jesus. And there is Zerubbabel in Jesus, so to speak. And so in the Eastern mindset of descendants, that would be legitimate. That would be as logical as DNA to us is. That idea that this is an extension of myself. So not only does Zechariah point to the metaphor here, but in Eastern way of thinking, they would think that this is very rational and scientific, that Jesus is rubbable, so to speak. And we would say, no, 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 that's pushing it too far. That's not logical. But then that's American snobbery. When we expect everybody to think exactly like us, and you can't think differently and still be correct. So that's the idea that's being pointed here. The point that is being emphasized here is God is basically challenging to have their loves ordered correctly. This is a very powerful book on ordered loves. It's okay to love your house, to love your wife, to love your husband and kids. It's okay to love this hobby. It's okay to love your ministry. It's okay to love those things. As long as those are hierarchied in the right order under Yahweh as your ultimate love. And that all those loves are filtered through your love for God. And that those loves are enjoyments that you have that you're using for Him and the kingdom. And Haggai is arguing very much that if your loves are disordered, I don't care 
If you're not worshiping a God and you have no idol in your house, you are worshiping a God and you have an idol in your house, especially if your house is your idol. And this is what God is making very clear, is if you have disordered loves, this is the same thing as what you've done in the past, Israel. And you are just as unclean as the idolater. And therefore you are without the presence of Yahweh and without the blessings. And this calls us to check this, especially we can relate to the houses thing. Even if you haven't fallen into that trap completely, we all sense that temptation. Okay, especially when you go to people's houses, well, in my case, when you go to people's houses and they have like way more for their kids than I do. And you're like, you get, I get that temptation, like, oh, if only. And then I realize, no, 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 no. That's more work and it's more time at work and more time here and that kind of stuff, less time with my family. And, and I got to get out of that. And I don't stay in that long, but I'm human. And those thoughts do pop in. And God's saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Okay. The other thing that he's saying here too is, and I think this is a powerful message too. As I mentioned before, it doesn't matter what you think that you need or what is flawed and lacking in you. All that matters is if you've given your heart over to God, his glory can make you into anything that he wants you to be. If we, listen, remember the reason that God's glory never indwelt this temple specifically was because the temple that Ezekiel was envisioning, the rebuilt temple, was Christ. And we see that when Christ says, tear down this temple in John chapter 2, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they're like, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. And it says they did not know that he was talking about his body. So then he comes along in John chapter 14 and says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. So the idea is that we're in the temple and he will be in us, which makes us the temple. And then Second Peter comes along and says, he is the living foundation stone and we're all living stones being built into him. And then Peter, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're a dwelling place for God, a house of God. And then in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit literally came down and dwelt them, making them the cosmic mountain and making them the house of God. So if that's true, then the glory of God that God says, I'm going to indwell this temple one day, and it doesn't matter how grand this temple looks or what it is and what it's capable or not capable of, when my glory indwells it, that will be the glory and the wonder of the world. And that's what the world will see and be attracted to. And that is what will change the world. The Bible is saying that Jesus is the temple and us being built into him makes us the temple. Then that what it means is it doesn't really matter what you have or what you don't have. All that matters is if you prepare a place for him, then he will become the glory in you. And that was what will attract the world change the world and shake the sky and the earth and that's what god is saying here and that's what we need to put our confidence and trust in and our major goal is not to try to make ourselves into something that the culture expects us to be our major goal is to prepare a place for god in our hearts to 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 pursue him to repent, to be obedient, to surrender, not my will be done, but your will be done, so that he can cultivate your heart and circumcise it and become the glory that shines in us 
so that nothing is impossible with those who are in God. And this is the idea that God is painting the picture of. You are the temple. So what he says about the temple, you are the new Jerusalem. What he says about the new Jerusalem is you. And that's what God is calling us to in this passage. So that is Haggai. 